0: Now listening to Grace City, Portland. We're going to continue through a series um, that we've been working on over the last several weeks called I Am, We Are. And the big idea, but as, um, as we've been looking through the scriptures, we've been asking God to reveal to us who he says we are. Um, and there's this incredible reality that you discover in the scriptures that God reveals, has revealed himself, and does reveal himself in the person of Jesus. God entered into creation. He became flesh, as it were. He became a human being to reveal to human beings who he is in the most um, incredible and explicit terms. And when we look to Jesus, we see the Father. When we look to the Son, we see God in full HD revealed to humanity. We also see who we are meant to be. And these incredible words that were written um, in one of John's epistles towards the very end of the New Testament, he said, As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Which is just, I mean, just think about it. Who Jesus is in terms of his identity. How he relates to God, how he loved others, how he walked as a human being filled with the spirit of God in holiness and in power in this world is how we're meant to experience life. And that's just packed full of all sorts of incredible mind melting paradox and theology and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's the kind of thing we could just spend the rest of our lives pondering and meditating upon. But as we look to Jesus and we discover who we're meant to be and how we're meant to experience life, it's there that we find well-being. It's there that we discover peace and joy and and security. And it's there that we learn how to relate to one another and experience a relationship with our maker that we were created for. And that, that is well-being. That is uh, the abundant life, as Jesus himself put it. And so we've been working through that. We've been unpacking that. And we could spend many, many years unpacking that. Um, but we've, looking at, we've been looking at some very specific aspects of that. Um, next week, we'll conclude the series. This week, we're going to talk about I Am, We Are Mighty. Um, and I want you to sort of recognize if you 're just jumping in, if you have no idea like where, where we 've been, or what we 've been talking about we're we 're we're coming at this from a slightly different angle this morning um, because we 've been talking about for the last few weeks what I would describe probably as more of the um, what do you call it not, not the gentler, the softer, but the more the more comfortable uh, sort of aspects of God's character and not comfortable in in like a watered down sense, but just in the the easy to sort of like, ah, yes, I like that. That's yes. But there's an aspect of God that's I would describe as more severe, more intense, more overwhelming. And this is the God who reveals himself as a mighty warrior. And when we look to God revealed in Jesus, We see something of his spirit in us, and that is the spirit of might, and I want us to really grab a hold of this. I want us to to open our hearts and minds uh, to receive from God in his word this morning as we explore this idea of an identity that says we are mighty, and we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so if you brought a Bible or if you have a Bible on your phone, this would be the time to grab it. Um, In fact, Just to start out with, I'm actually going to read a whole, I don't know, there's probably about 20 verses here um, that I've sort of been collecting and meditating upon for quite some time. If you want to just listen carefully, you could consider this a moment of meditation as you're listening to God's word. You could even close your eyes. Um, Or if you want to try to scribble down as many of these references as you can. Um, Let me read these to you. And then I'm going to pray and we'll go from there. A biblical biblical glimpse at the God who is mighty. We're going to begin in Deuteronomy 4.34. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 7, 8. It is because the Lord loves you and keeps his promises that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And after God rescued his children from slavery and brought them out of Egypt and, and, and after they crossed the Red Sea and escaped from Pharaoh and his army, it says in Exodus 15, verses one to three. By the way, this is the first worship song recorded in scripture. It says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength, and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. The prophet Nehemiah wrote in chapter nine, verse 32, Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 24, 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Psalm 93, 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And we could go on and on and on. This is our king, our mighty warrior king. This is not a sweet little old grandpa God who's just chilling in the clouds, waiting, hoping that perhaps one of his grandkids might stop by for a bit of a chat, maybe a little cuddle. Although I do love that aspect of our God. But this, this is Mama Lion who fiercely loves her children. And if you know my South African wife, you know exactly what that's supposed to mean. (laughs) This is surely where C.S. Lewis drew his inspiration for Aslan, the king, the lion king of Narnia. And many of you will remember that that epic exchange between mr beaver and the little girl susan mr beaver said aslan is a lion the lion the great lion oh said susan i thought he was a man is he quite safe i shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion safe said mr beaver who said anything about safe of course he isn't safe but he is good he's the king He's the king, I tell you. But what about Jesus? Because if I had to guess, many of us are probably wondering, but that's, isn't that that slightly intense, often angry Old Testament God that I've been warned about? What about Jesus? Was Jesus mighty like the God of the Old Testament? Now, um, many of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with that old first-century heretic, uh, Marcion. Of course, it's exactly what you're thinking about at this moment. Um, Marcionism. This is actually it's important to know at least a few classic heresies for your arsenal. Because oftentimes what we do is when we're, we're grappling with some, and I told you, this isn't like the softer side of God. This is, wow, this is God the warrior. This is Mama Lion who rescues her children with great ferocity. And then we kind of step back and we're like, Susan, ooh, is, is he safe? I don't, I don't know if I want to tango with this fierce, terrifying God. And so we quickly begin to construct theology to somehow perhaps tame the lion. Let's just just keep the lion at a distance, theologically speaking, because that, God makes me very nervous. And this is of course what Marcion did, first century heretic. Um, Big debate, Tertullian was really the one that sort of dealt with this heresy that cropped up in the first century. It's right in the same broader category of Gnosticism, but Marcion in particular argued that the God of the Old Testament was not the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And in fact, he argued quite vigorously that we've just gotta lose the Old Testament altogether. And so if you were able to, to retrieve some of the ancient writings, writings of Marcion, he would have argued that lose the Old Testament will keep just Luke and all of Paul's epistles. That's it, everything else has gotta go. And what he did was end up confusing a lot of people, including himself, in terms of who is this God? And how do we reconcile the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and yet has revealed himself in this incredibly unique way in his son, Jesus? Now, to be sure, um, for every great heresy, there's sort of the flip side to the coin. And we could go to the other side and say, right, right. Well, we don't want to lose the Old Testament, um, but sometimes what we'll do in a sharp reaction to that idea or that way of thinking is say, right, what we need to do then is just sort of focus in on that severe aspect of God's character, the God who does deliver his children with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm who is not afraid to flex his might, if it means rescuing innocent people from evil oppressors. And so we can focus on that, forgetting that in fact, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that long ago, God had revealed himself to us through the writings of the prophets, but now has most fully and perfectly revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we need to bring those two worlds together. We need to happily hold those two tensions tightly together. And remember that good Christian theology is Christ-centric. We need to think Christologically as we grapple with the wide spectrum of God's character and what he's like. So to go back to my question, is Jesus just as mighty just as ferocious as the God of the Old Testament, I would say yes, absolutely, he is, he must be, otherwise we have um, we've, we've gone the way of Marcion and we don't need to do that again. Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, this is what I just referred to, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. he wrote of the coming Messiah. Before Jesus came, he wrote in Isaiah nine, verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in Luke chapter 24, the disciples after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected spoke of Jesus of Nazareth, as the one who was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And the apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. I love this. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority, and although you were once dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we talked about that last week, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is a picture of an ancient conquering foe who, in order to display his might, would have taken his captives and led them as a parade through the city he's just claimed And it would have been a way to say, look at how powerful I am. Know how mighty this victory truly is. And he would have brought in his his captives along behind him, those who he had just conquered. And the picture here Paul is painting for us is Jesus, the conquering king, who disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities. He undid the claim that they ever had on humanity. He subdued every demon in hell. He conquered sin and death as the great and mighty warrior king that he was and is and will always be. He is King Jesus, the mighty one. How do you feel about that? And concerning us, the apostle Paul prays That we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that we might be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Lord Jesus, We declare this morning that you are the mighty one. You are the greater one. You are a good, faithful, and strong king. We thank you that you are the lamb who was slain for us, and you are the lion who rescues us from our enemies. I pray that this morning as we consider this that you would reveal to us how we're to walk out our lives and to view ourselves as your children, as those who have been created in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to look at three aspects of, of what it means to be mighty in Christ this morning. I want to talk about might and peace, Mighty in peace, mighty in joy, and mighty in love. Our God is mighty, and in Jesus Christ we are mighty. That is, as we trust and follow Jesus and learn to obey him by his spirit, who is at work within us, we are strong in the power of his might. Why is this important? Why is this a bit why do we need to understand this why am I even trying to to make the point it's because we live in a world that I in my experience talking personally here has seemed to to want very much to marginalize the the Christian life, me as a follower of Jesus to this little category of just do good and be nice just do good and be nice and try to stay out of the way when things get a little exciting. And yet when you read the scriptures, you, you find this, this God who became one of us, King Jesus, who has not only rescued people from slavery, who's not only rescued us, who's not only shown his great love towards us, but then he says, now come, follow me, because I want to set the whole world free. And there are, there are dark forces, principalities, evil forces of wickedness. There's all sorts of sort of vernacular words that are used to describe the reality of this spiritual world, this kingdom of darkness, as it were, that Jesus is saying, come on, let's go. Let's take it by storm. I've I've disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now it's time to crash the gates down and share the gospel. Tell people about who I am and what I've done. That because I am the mighty one, they can go free. And he wants to involve us. He wants us to follow him onto this mission to see people, captives, set free. And I think we would do very, very well if we could begin to to tap into that. To think a little bit more like that. Not become um, annoying I overheard a conversation in Starbucks this week, some lady, you ever you ever like hear like those little random clips and conversations, like the door opens and you hear like three words and it closes again? And some lady says, He's not mean, he's just macho, door closed. And I was like, hmm, weird. <laughs> God's not mean, he's just macho. Eh, no. Nope, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about bravado. We're not talking about being mean. We're not talking about flexing our spiritual muscles. We're not talking about being someone you're not because we could easily begin to imagine like, okay, so what personality type am am I supposed to be in light of what you're trying to say? And we're not talking about any of that. We're talking about something much more substantial, something much more helpful, something much more from the very heart of God. But I want us as a church to realize that our king is mighty, and we are his children, and he's calling us to follow him and to walk in this spirit of might, if you will, so that when this world is coming at us hard, when anxiety and depression and loneliness and emotion and lies and even spiritual forces, yes, real spiritual forces that would want to keep us in the darkness, keep us believing lies that have been spoken to us. There should be something in us, i.e. Jesus, that rises up and says, no, I resist you. And the spirit of might would compel us to stand and fight Mark chapter four, verse 35. I think this one's actually up there. Let's talk about mighty and peace. This is a famous story. You may have heard it. You may have read it many times. Mark four thirty-five. that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. You always know something's good is about to happen when he says that. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind him, uh, they took him along just as he was, that is the disciples took Jesus, and they got in the boat. There was also other boats with them. Verse 37, a furious squall came up, a storm, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Peace, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. Peace, be still. Now, to be sure, this is Jesus fully human, fully. God demonstrating something of his deity to his disciples, and we just read about the the, the waves in the sea that God himself is mightier than they, and so Jesus is doing more than just like, "Oh, this is really uh, interrupting my nap. Let me take care of this he 's demonstrating something to say, "You need to know exactly who I am, but at the same time he 's demonstrating something of how we Should think about the storms. I have not been in a real squall lately. Anyone been in a squall lately? Lately? (laughs) But you've been in squalls. You might be in one right now. And I'm talking about the sort of like squalls that we typically sort of live in in our modern day world, where in your soul there's a storm raging. Where in your world, there's relational conflict and difficulty and and emotions and things going on where you feel like, I could go down. This could be it. My boat is, is about to be swamped. This is about to go down. And I believe the spirit of might would say, rise up. Speak to the storm that's in your own soul. Why are you downcast?" Oh, my soul, why are you downcast within me? Soul, arise. Peace, be still. And how oftentimes do we just sort of resign ourselves to getting by? How often do we just simply be like, well, you know, it's just I'm having a rough day and I'm a little tired and my emotions are getting the best of me. And we're so quick to just sort of marginalize some of the other aspects of the storm that's raging on in our lives. And we forget that when Jesus was confronted with a very real storm, he didn't just, I don't know, qualify it away or make excuses for why really he just needs to like take a nap. He was already napping. He rose up and he commanded this storm to be still. Jesus is our peace. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 5 to 7 says, The Lord is at hand. That is, the Lord is present. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer with thanksgiving, the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Um, I believe in utilizing the gifts of good, qualified professional counselors, their gifts. In fact, we have a professional counselor that's a part of our congregation here, Gabby uh, Yunt, um, and I'm quite regularly these days referring people to her, and we have some other counselors in the city um, who are gifts to the body of Christ. Um, I believe that God has given us uh, medicine, science, and technology, and if you suffer from a chronic anxiety or depression, it might be very wise for you to see a doctor and perhaps get on medication. That could be, a, that could be an answer to prayer, actually. And I also believe that we are holistic beings, that we're not these sort of like compartmentalized individuals. Where, you know, I kind of get the, the, the chemical stuff that I'm treating over here, and I kind of got these like emotional things. Oh, and then I go to church on Sundays. And, you know, I get a little prayer every once in a while. And you no, know, we, we're, we're meant... To see all of these aspects of our beings and these ways of addressing some of the challenges that we face in our lives as as integrated experiences, just as we are integrated people. But I want to make the point again that oftentimes, and perhaps it has everything to do with our culture, with our society. Uh, we do live in a very, very material world, ultra material world. That's that's the lens through which we see life from like day one. And there's no, you're not gonna get away from that. If you're born in this part of the world, that's your lens. But I would say, let's put a greater lens on it. Let's look through the lens of Christ and realize that there is a spiritual world that's just as real as this world that we live in. And in the same way, I should treat the, my ailments using medicine and therapy, etc., I need to rise up in the spirit of Christ and resist with might and speak to the storm that rages on all around me and perhaps in my own soul and say, peace, peace still and trust that the king, the mighty one is present, that he is at hand and he still has authority to command the waves to be still. To be sure we only ever pray, we only ever resist, we only ever command the storm to be still in the name of the king. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very, very important point, actually. Um, we've not, we're not imbued with magical p- power. Uh, we're not manipulating Uh, the name of Jesus to somehow advance our spiritual agenda. We're simply standing on the word of God that says Jesus is at hand. He is in the boat of my soul when I pray in his name as he commanded me to. I have um, been entrusted with authority to command storms to be still. Mighty in joy. John chapter 16. Let's go there. This is towards the end of Jesus's life and ministry. He's been crucified, or rather he's about to be crucified, and he's speaking to his disciples in a very intimate moment. And in John chapter 16, starting in verse 21, he says, he applies a metaphor, it's a very apt metaphor. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Interesting choice of words. She has sorrow, excruciating sorrow, from what I understand. Because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now. They're just grappling with the news that they've received that their their Messiah is about to be crucified. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me directly. Truly, truly, I say to you whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The same principle applies. Everything that I said about peace, guys, we need joy. And sometimes I think we're so quick to just address the material, treat the natural, forgetting that sorrow is just as much a spiritual experience as anything else. And sometimes the depression that I'm experiencing or the temptation that I'm experiencing, the sin that, that is just weighing me down, because of something I did like a year ago that I've confessed, that I've forsaken a long time ago, still weighs on me, that sin that someone committed against me 15 years ago, still walking around with the weight of that, that memory, that thing that seemed to define me in a moment. There's a spiritual element to that. And Jesus is saying, yes, sorrow is real. And yes, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. He's saying, Am I hurt for a while, but you will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I don't know how you read that, but that just kind of like, yeah, that's right. That's right. In the name of Jesus, you're not stealing my joy today. Circumstances, empty wallet, Relational difficulties, kids. You know what I'm talking about. One of the great paradoxes in life. You will not take my joy. And Jesus said, Ask in my name. Ask in mine. Take your stand. Ask in my name and be mighty in my joy. Colossians chapter one, verse 11 says, we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And I love what the prophet Nehemiah says. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's talk about love. Mighty love. In love, this will be our third and final one. We're not gonna have a text up there because there's just a very, very short one. Luke 23, 34, this is when Jesus is being crucified on a hill between two criminals. And you've likely seen the movie and you know the scene. He's been tortured, he's been ridiculed, he's been put to utter shame. And now he's hanging virtually naked, suffering on a Roman cross. And what does he do in that moment? He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the king who conquers evil. How? Through a mighty act of love. I wanna say something about this and some of you, you're you're probably gonna disagree with me outright. Just bite your tongue, listen, think about this. I think it's a mistake to somehow pit God's love against his might. God is not loving in one moment as we watch Jesus and then in another moment gets like super angry and kind of loses it and goes ballistic and becomes mighty. He's not fractured in his character. He's not confused. He's not a contradiction. God is mighty in love. Um, I believe it was the first verse we read. Why did he rescue his people through a mighty act of, of strength and terror and war because of his love because of his steadfast love and faithfulness he is mama lion Romans 5 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us He demonstrated his love for us through his mighty victory on the cross. Remember what Colossians said? That he overcame. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or on it. The translations vary. I would say through the cross. He triumphed. Over death, sin, he vanquished evil through a mighty act of love. This is the might, the love, the full character of God put on the most vivid display as he demonstrates it for us on the cross. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good we are to walk in the might of God's love overcoming evil taking our stand rising up in might because that's how God demonstrates his love and we would do well to always remember that though we walk in the flesh though I live in a material world I don't wage war against people Jesus did not drop A-bombs, he died on a cross. The ultimate display of God's power was manifest in an act of love when he died for my sins and yours on the cross. How do we walk in the might of God's love? We die to ourselves, we lay down our lives to serve others like our king, like Jesus and that is mighty in love can I invite the band to come up please? I'm not mad Um, and I'm certainly not trying to somehow, you know, create some sort of emotional moment, although there's nothing wrong with emotions, but I want us as a church family as we consider our identity, our identity, that our king is a mighty king, our God is a mighty God that we are called to live and to love and to serve and to be children of God like Christ and might. That we've been entrusted with a a strength and authority in Jesus Christ that is greater than any other power that we might witness in this created world. The king of the universe the one who conquered death he is our king and he calls us to walk in the power of his might in peace and joy and the most excellent way the way of love can we stand together please